0: Hey everyone, Andrew here. Thanks for listening to today's show. A couple of things before we get started. If you're liking the series, um, it would mean a lot to me if you would make your way over to iTunes or to Stitcher or wherever you're getting your podcasts and leave a rating um, if you're so inclined. Uh, That really helps um, other people find the show and disseminate it more broadly. Second, I'm I'm beginning my cardiology fellowship and as such, I was gonna start doing something a bit different. So over the next few months, I will be recording heart sounds for tutorials on cardiac auscultation with the gracious support of Think Labs, the creators of a digital stethoscope. The ThinkLabs One digital stethoscope has best-in-class sound quality amplification aligned for improved auscultation of hard-to-hear heart sounds. Uh, they've offered a promo code APCARDIO19 for $50 off your purchase at store.thinklabs.com. Now in today's episode, I'll be meeting with Dr. Lenahan. You've been hearing a lot from him recently, but just to reiterate, he's the director of the Cardio-Oncology program at Washington University in St. Louis. And in today's episode, we're going to speak uh, primarily about immune checkpoint inhibitors. We touched on this topic briefly in the last episode while discussing cardio-oncology more broadly, but here we take a deeper dive into this specific subject. I think it's an interesting topic. There's a lot of people who are interested in this and write a lot about it, specifically about myocarditis and immune checkpoint inhibitors. As always, I think Dr. Langham is a great teacher, and I enjoyed speaking with him. So I think you'll enjoy today's episode. So without further ado, we'll get started. This is AP Cardiology, and this is your host, Andrew Perry. will remember you just from recently talking about cardio-oncology in general, so we can probably pass on the, the introductions and we'll jump right in. One, one thing that we had briefly hit last time was this class of drugs, uh, immune uh, checkpoint inhibitors, which are getting uh, a lot of press and being used more widely uh, within oncology and finding newer applications Know, all the time. So I guess first off, maybe just to set the ground base, like what are immune checkpoint inhibitors? Like what do they do? What is their action? In a, in a simplistic term, maybe.
1: Well, good. Since since I'm explaining it, it's going to have to be in a simplistic term since I would not be able to give you the real immune, immune-related details. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the way I would understand it is the, the class of drugs are called checkpoint inhibitors. And in your body, you have checkpoints that hold back your response, is the way that I understand it. And so a checkpoint inhibitor, what it does is it inhibits those checkpoints. So you could think of it like uh, you're driving your car down a hill and you put the brakes on mm-hmm. to go down the hill in a safe manner. Uh, And a checkpoint inhibitor is like taking the brakes off. Mm -hmm. So uh, whatever your immune system is going to do to respond to the cancer, uh, it's going to do it in a way that the brakes are off and it will respond very aggressively. Yeah. So for cancers that previously have been very difficult to treat, such as melanoma or lung cancer, you know, the success of chemotherapy or radiation or surgery in those settings. I mean, other than primary lung cancer, if you if you take it all out at, at the time of surgery, then mm-hmm. you may be cured, but if you can't do that, then all the chemotherapy and radiation regimens that have been going on for many years really weren't very successful. They really didn't make a huge difference in terms of outcomes. Mm-hmm. And once the checkpoint inhibitors, different ones, have been studied in those two populations, you know, people uh, have had a dramatic improvement in their their longevity. And I would even hesitate to say that some some people, even in the melanoma space, are now trying to uh, be cautious, but even saying things like you know potentially cured. Yeah. So somebody who had Melanoma that had been metastatic locally or widely Nobody ever would have said in the past that that they were ever cured of their disease sure and um, but now with prolonged Undetectable disease and number of years in these patients, you know people are starting to to wonder whether they might actually have been cured so it's a really fantastic development especially for those cancers Mm-hmm. and then because something is good in one place we always think that it's got to be good everywhere sure so pretty much every cancer right now has some clinical trial or some uh, research development using checkpoint inhibitors in some way either by themselves or in combination with, with some other drugs mm-hmm. So. hmm uh, last time I checked, or uh, the last time this was sort of given to me as an update, that there's, I think there's over 400 clinical trials on clinicaltrials.gov right now looking at, you know, improvement in some cancer with checkpoint inhibitors. Wow. Which is an yeah. astounding amount of That studies. is. Yeah. And I
0: think like you, like you would mentioned, you hinted that the melanoma patients, at least in my understanding, that's one of the, I think, one of the first places where these checkpoint inhibitors showed such a marked improvement in patients, you know, with stage four melanoma.
1: Yeah, they, you know, in the years past, you know, they had been trying immune-based therapy for melanoma for many years, and they would infuse, I don't know exactly which ones, but I'm pretty sure uh, IL-2 and other mm-hmm. uh, interleukin therapy. Mm-hmm. to try to stimulate the immune system to help fight the battle and I mean basically you you infuse IL-2 into a into a patient they just feel terrible for many days uh-huh. uh, because you know your immune system is just sort of fighting things at every level and uh, but even with those infusions there just wasn't any real documented success. Mm-hmm. They certainly made the patient feel bad during the time, but uh, no major change in the outcomes. Mm-hmm. So I think melanoma, in particular the people who treat melanoma, uh, have been looking at immune-based therapy for many, many years, you know, vaccines and interleukins, etc. And then, then when they found this this class of drugs, the checkpoint inhibitors, you know, it's like the clouds parted and the sun came out Uh-huh. and there was finally some something some signal really of success yeah happened. and it it wasn't subtle it was it was significant one
0: yeah. of the other major or you know, the other major uses for checkpoint inhibitors and in other cancers or I guess maybe better said what other cancers are being treated
1: primarily? yeah these? well I think there there are a number of
0: other cancers
1: that are being treated that the outcomes difference is not as great mm-hmm. but certainly renal cell cancer i think there was a publication within the past year pretty sure it was in the new england journal that had a combination therapy with checkpoint inhibitor and anti vegf based therapy for the treatment of renal cell that showed an, an improvement in outcome beyond just anti vegf therapy so mm-hmm. in many cases that might be sort of considered first-line therapy in renal cell cancer,
2: mm-hmm.
1: where eight or ten years ago, anti-VEGF therapy was first-line therapy. Mm-hmm. So, so there's there's some real change in that condition as well. And then one checkpoint inhibitor was approved for breast cancer, but it's, I believe it's you know, metastatic or refractory breast cancer and Mm -hmm. it's added on to other therapies. So gotcha. I I think there's a documented benefit, but it's not quite as striking as with some of these other conditions. Mm -hmm.
0: And most of these that you mentioned are mostly solid tumors. What about any you know about any of the hematologic malignancies? Has there been a lot of traction that way or those might be still under
1: study? I those are those are still under study. I know, for example, in multiple myeloma, they're adding it on to other therapy and uh, it seems to be, you know, possibly helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the hematologic side, they've really, they've gone more towards CAR-T therapy yeah. as, as a, in essence, a, an immune-based therapy. Yeah. And so that's kind of the hottest thing in, mm-hmm. in the hematology world. Sure.
0: Yeah. Now with these, well, with the advent of these immune checkpoint inhibitors, uh, I remember reading that the cardiotoxicities weren't really noticed within the first few trials that had been were published and like recorded. It wasn't until later on that there began to be attention noticing. Oh, there's probably some side effects of these that we didn't notice. Like they first noticed a lot of these patients, they can get. As we discussed, rashes, they can get colitis, you can get thyroiditis as well, but some of these like myocarditis or vasculitis had gone unnoticed. So when did that first start to like, or did you become aware of these issues?
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, usually it takes, it it takes a little while for a drug to kind of get out to the masses, Uh you know, in the sense that. There could be a success in a specific area of oncology, and unless you happen to have direct contact with that area at the beginning, you're just not gonna see it. And until until it kind of spreads out in a broader population and it starts being applied in more, you know, like melanoma luckily is not that common of a cancer, uh-huh. uh, as opposed to if if checkpoint inhibitors originally started in say breast cancer or lung cancer where those cancers are so common that people will see them because you know there are just a lot of patients around yeah. that have those problems uh, so I think that because it really got its stronghold in melanoma you know that's not that common of a cancer so sure just your average practitioners not necessarily going to come across those patients, and it wasn't until it started spreading out that we really started to notice that, and as you you do things in older patients, they're more likely to have cardiac related issues either exacerbated or created by by the therapies. So I think that it took a while for it to start to show up, but now it's showing up. And I would say it's showing up very frequently only because of the volume of people that are being treated. Mm, okay. So there's easily not a week that goes by that we're not concerned about somebody who's getting a checkpoint inhibitor. So that's uh, from a ca- cardiac point of view. So it's not like it's an uncommon thing, but part of the reason for that is that everybody is getting checkpoint inhibitors. Gotcha. Okay. So, all kinds of cancers and all different contexts mm-hmm. so you know if, if in the hospital today 50 people get treated with checkpoint inhibitors
2: mm-hmm.
1: it doesn't it wouldn't surprise you that one person today might have an issue but still that would be pretty rare yeah uh-huh. uh, but that's that's how frequent those drugs are being used now so pretty much everybody is on it yeah and every cancer
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you about that—the frequency or the incidence of these complications. Because in part, I think, you know, being a referral center and high volume in that way, we can might we see a lot of them. So, I, I what are like the? Do you know the published rates or
1: for these incidences? For for true myocarditis, Mm -hmm. uh, thankfully, it's still probably one percent. It may even be lower than that for true myocarditis my general feeling would be that if you take all of the potential cardiac issues that could occur at this point in time i would estimate you know just from personal experience that the range of cardiac issues occurring in a in a patient being treated with checkpoint inhibitors is probably around 5%. now some of those Aren't as serious as myocarditis. Certainly, mm-hmm. myocarditis is a very serious diagnosis. Yeah. And uh, right now, the published rates of mortality from myocarditis are around fifty percent. So, so I think if you've come up with that diagnosis, that's that's a tif- very difficult problem. Yeah. 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 So ideally, we would want to identify it long before that becomes you know a real problem mm-hmm. because you know even in the non-cancer world trying to figure out if somebody has myocarditis and then what way in which you treat it mm-hmm. uh, is it's been a challenge for 15 20 yeah. years i mean even in you know ccu if you if you document somebody has myocarditis which it's a challenge to do that uh, you know then you say okay now that i figured it out how do i treat it mhm you know, if you start thinking about that, you're going, you know, there's nothing really all that great. Yeah. If I if I think that it's giant cell myocarditis, then you know, high dose steroids seems to have a positive effect. Mm-hmm. But every other kind of myocarditis, you know, it's probably a viral syndrome and mm-hmm. we don't really know how to shut that off. Yeah. So it's really It's a difficult situation because we, I would say, collectively, uh, certainly in the heart failure world, we didn't really have a great handle on myocarditis before, Uh and now you add this whole new entity that we're just trying to figure out into the mix. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's it's a real challenge. We really need to share our information with other places on a regular basis so that we learn from each other. Mm -hmm. I think that's a key element. Okay. Now,
0: before we get to more specifics about diagnosing and possibly treating myocarditis in these patients, also want to ask about vasculitis. Now, I suspect that's going to be a much harder diagnosis and complication catch and to pick up and possibly even like attribute to the checkpoint neighborhood but do you have a a sense for like the incidence or frequency of that
1: yeah well I'd say uh, no the answer is no okay I can tell you what I think I mean I think that it's still low but it's it's not zero and Mm -hmm. it's probably not super common either so the general estimates again Somewhere between zero and five percent, okay. and depending on your own personal local experience, you may think it's a little, a little, a little closer to five percent. Uh, other people might say no, it's is quite rare. Okay, but I think if you look at patients, a, a good example is our patients with lung cancer who, you know, are typically in their sixties or seventies or maybe even eighties. They almost for sure have coronary disease, either a past history of it mm-hmm. or undiagnosed coronary disease, and then if you give them a checkpoint inhibitor and they develop uh, you know, acute coronary syndrome or something yeah. like that, is that just their coronary disease that became manifest or is sure. that some sort of quiet uh, vasculitis that was on top of existing coronary disease? So mm-hmm. I think that depending on how you defined vasculitis, mm-hmm. you may find that the incidence is quite high. Yeah. So.
2: And that's
0: exactly what I was kind of wondering, thinking about our lung cancer patients, primarily a lot of smokers in that population, high risk for coronary disease, then you give them this extra insult, and then does that just tip over their coronary atherosclerosis into some acute coronary syndrome that may have been like some little vasculitis, or is it just totally unrelated? And that's yeah, probably it's probably hard to know.
1: It's really hard to know, and I think, uh, you know, we'd love to, we need to find screening tests that can tell us, you know, which patient's at risk, number one. So before they start their treatment, we can do whatever tests we think we need to do to find out, you know, this is a very high-risk patient or maybe a lower-risk patient. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a key distinction. And then as they're undergoing therapy, you know, what tool do you use, if any, that we know of to detect somebody who's developing a problem before it becomes myocarditis? Because once it becomes myocarditis, you know, we're in trouble. Because mm-hmm. right now our treatments are not good and the mortality is 50%. Gotcha.
0: So, let's come back to then diagnosing myocarditis. What is a maybe a typical scenario in which you get called over to the oncology tower to be like please like evaluate or maybe somebody sent to you in clinic per chance like concerned that they might have some myocarditis. What might this person look
1: like? Yeah, so this this is a really important question and I wish I had a a stand pat answer, but I don't. I think you have to open your mind up because uh, the manifestations of myocarditis could be you know heart failure and that kind of thing Uh or it could be acute coronary syndrome like presentation or it could be a rhythm disturbance just by itself Mm -hmm. and you know we've had cases that people presented with complete heart block or VT or some other rhythm disturbance and then when you when you investigated in in significant detail you realize you know this is probably the manifestation of myocarditis it just showed up this way
2: hmm
1: so I think that there's there's right now I would say there's no there's no common or or very protocolized way in which I could say you could detect this at, at an earlier point but uh-huh. I think you have to have your mind open and and like I said, we need to share how we do these things with other places. And they may have a better way than we do, and mm-hmm. you know, make sure that we continuously improve what we're doing.
0: Yeah. So, what sorts of tests might you order? And is there a test that's more sensitive to like rule out any consideration for myocarditis?
1: Yeah, again, I think I have my patterns, I have uh-huh. the ones that I've come up with. Uh, I'm not sure that they're any better than anybody else's, but one general suggestion was that you know you follow troponins at each time that you that you do that you do you know checkpoint inhibitor therapy,
0: starting like, with like a baseline before yeah starting that, you know, at a baseline
1: and then follow troponin each time they get a uh, an infusion, mm-hmm. but there have been people who have. Followed that strategy and didn't find anything mm. and so and then I've had a case several cases actually where uh, the troponins really were either normal or minimally abnormal but other tests were strikingly abnormal so including EKGs or NT Pro or some other markers mm. um, so I don't think they're I don't think you know doing a troponin is going to answer all your questions, uh, but some people have recommended that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I have been looking for inflammatory markers if I'm seeing a person uh, in an outpatient setting, so they're not presenting for an acute problem, but they may be presenting for a more chronic problem,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so I look for markers of inflammation and see if that could tip me off that something's happening. Sure. Okay. Kind of along the lines of if you were, so transplant rejection, you know, if we if we equated myocarditis to transplant rejection, you know, we, uh, we have some blood tests, but they're not really very helpful. Uh, you can do some scans and things, but they're not really that helpful in the end.
2: Uh-huh.
1: in the case of transplant, uh, Rejection, you know, it comes down to a biopsy, yeah. uh-huh. so you do a biopsy. In the case of myocarditis related to checkpoint inhibitor, most people have equated it to transplant rejection. But, you know, it's more difficult to say we're going to go do a biopsy in everybody who were suspecting myocarditis. I just don't think that's feasible yeah. for, for many reasons, but not the least of which is... These drugs are being given to so many different people in so many different places that if you were a cardiologist in a community or someplace where they never did biopsies uh-huh. uh, and you see a patient and they are on a checkpoint inhibitor and you're worried about myocarditis, you, know, you can't just say, oh, I'll just do a biopsy. Because yeah. nobody at that institution is gonna be comfortable with it. And you know it probably has some risk that is a little higher than than you would yeah. normally accept and uh so i think that just going straight to a biopsy is not going to be the answer
0: plus like the biopsy is just of the interventricular septum and the myocarditis i mean this can be patchy like you of can, course uh,
1: sure it yeah, could not be involving that area no we don't know at all how sensitive or specific the biopsy is for sure yeah uh but you know that's kind of what we do in some situations but so i think that we need to find blood tests or or imaging that that could be a hopefully a, a reasonably accurate proxy for for myocarditis mm-hmm. so you say okay i'll do an mri it's a good test but in my own personal experience it's only about 50/50 that mm. where in cases where i was really convinced that myocarditis was present and I did an MRI I think it's about 50/50 whether you'll find some significant abnormalities or not
0: and same with pet scans
1: like yeah i mean the pet scan the, the pet scan is a complex question and uh, i think it depends on your institution how good they may be at doing pet scans so okay. so I think that there's a lot more variability introduced there. And I'm not sure I know what the findings would show. Gotcha. Um, So in the end, I think a good clinical evaluation. Be aware of all potential ways in which myocarditis might show up. And certainly blood testing is something you can do at every institution. So I would favor doing those things. But I wouldn't limit it limit it to just troponin, I would say. Do NT-pro BNP or natriuretic peptide level. Mm-hmm. I do CRPs, sometimes sed rates, sometimes uh, ANA titer. Anything that could tell me that there's a, an inflammatory process going on. Mm-hmm. And then I do do MRIs in selected patients. And uh, when I really need to know the answer, I do a biopsy. But again, I'm at a place where I'm very comfortable with my colleagues who who do biopsies because we do them a lot. Mm-hmm. So not every institution can, you know, has that kind of support. Okay.
0: Now you had uh, referenced to the pathology of immune checkpoint inhibitor myocarditis. Um, as being possibly similar to transplant rejection, or at least some people have advocated that. Do we have any uh, sense for the possible mechanisms, whether that's um, whether that's true or not, and in regards to the mechanism for these cardiotoxicities?
1: Yeah, so there have been a few reports on this topic, and you know, one of the first reports. Showed that the the that there's a lot of T cell you know infiltration in the in the area where there is myocarditis, mm-hmm. uh, and th- those were in humans. So those were humans that got checkpoint inhibitors, and so I have no doubt that T cells went to that place and caused a reaction, and and mm-hmm. but that was only detected at autopsies. So. Clearly if we're gonna go by that as evidence, I mean, we were kinda late to the game there, Yeah. you know, we need to find something sooner than that, you mm-hmm. know, that that tells us what's going on. And then if a, if a person is on a checkpoint inhibitor and again, my understanding of the drug is that it's taking the brakes off your immune system. It's allowing them to just run forward. That there, the your immune system is fighting yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, so these aren't uh, not. It's not like rejection in my view, because rejection is fighting a foreign body, fighting a different heart. You know, mm-hmm. somebody else's heart. So there's antigens on there that that your body recognizes as foreign. Mm -hmm. So in the case of checkpoint inhibitor myocarditis, there shouldn't be anything foreign in your body. Yeah. So whatever that mechanism for T cell overactivity, I don't think it's that. I think it's some other, some other process. I'm Mm -hmm. not smart enough to know what it is, but it just seems to me that that's not the whole answer. Yeah. And, you know, I think that, there needs to be a lot more work done in this space, that's mm-hmm. for sure.
0: Yeah, no, I saw, I did read up on a couple of, I, I thought some really interesting, like, I mean, they're mice models about using some of these, like, um, the checkpoint inhibitor. So they're talking about, like, CTLA4 receptors and PD1 receptors. And, you know, if you knock these out in, like, mice, then there can be, you know, the consequences that they have higher rates of dilated cardiomyopathy, or they succumb to like myocarditis with some of these. Anyhow, super interesting. And what you're talking about, the autopsies, a lot of T-cells in there. Yeah, interesting to think about where this is going awry and what is the signal that is then propagating them your immune system to then attack your heart.
1: And I think one of the biggest issues is, you know, I think that mouse studies are... Obviously super important for us to have a basic understanding of problems Mm -hmm. but especially in relation to our the human immune response I Would imagine without knowing all these details, but I would imagine that this immune response is dramatically different Different, than a mouse yeah, and if you knock out one gene or one receptor or you do some mm-hmm. sort of knockout study, that may inform one aspect of that response. And, and that's certainly important. Yeah. But in a human, there's got to be yeah. a lot of potential explanations. And I don't think uh, a mouse model is going to fully explain the human response. Sure. I think that's totally fair. And, and yeah. so I think... We need to get a lot of smart people working on this for sure because we, we need to come up with a better way of identifying it earlier mm-hmm. first off and then of course once you do identify it treating it more effectively i think we're, we're all sort of searching for that
0: mm-hmm. now myocarditis getting on to treatment this can i mean i haven't personally seen any cases, but I imagine there could be a myriad and a spectrum of severity of myocarditis from someone, as you mentioned, you can have arrhythmias from someone possibly having like a new onset of atrial fibrillation all the way through the gamut to someone who has fulminant like myocarditis, acute decompensated heart failure, you know, who ends up on like mechanical support in an ICU. So what's like the spectrum of... Uh, now, along these lines, these points, what sorts of treatment options do you
1: have or do you use? Yeah, so this is, this is the, the holy grail. Uh-huh. If, if I could answer those things accurately, I would love to. The, there, there is a spectrum, and it is wide, from some minor symptom, relatively minor symptom, and you do some image and you show some pericarditis, for example. Uh-huh. Uh, that could be a small amount of pericarditis or it could be a lot of pericarditis. And there could be a large effusion or a small effusion. And then depending on what you found there, then you would manage it differently. Uh, to cardiogenic shock, acute coronary syndrome type appearance. And mm-hmm. you get the person in the ICU and you try all sorts of. Pressors, etc. And they don't seem to work very well And then, you know, unfortunately people do die of this condition. It's uh-huh. it's, a, it's a real thing. So you know the key is to to identify it early and If you do feel like myocarditis is present most people would say obviously stop the checkpoint inhibitor mm-hmm. immediately, but uh, You know high-dose steroids uh, up to a gram of mm-hmm. uh, hydro uh, uh, probably methylprednisone. Yeah, a gram yeah. of methylprednisone for three days. Mm-hmm. So just massive doses, uh, and then a slow taper of prednisone over time. Mm-hmm. So you know that's uh, that's the initial therapy, and then there's a lot of discussion about what's the next line of therapy in. And some people advocate uh, remicade or infliximab. Mm-hmm. Others advocate mycophenolate. You know, again, sort of yeah. along the transplant rejection pattern. Uh-huh. And then others have advocated for really sick patients, uh, anti-thymocyte globulin, yeah. or ATG. These are really aggressive therapies that uh you know basically shut off your immune system and so you know just imagine what's happening in a patient you have a patient with a cancer that's out of control Mm -hmm. you give them a checkpoint inhibitor and your immune system goes nuts Mm -hmm. to fight the cancer and maybe it goes a little bit overboard and it starts starts some autoimmune Mm -hmm. battle and then you give some other drug to just shut off your immune system Uh so you know your immune system is like you know punch drunk it doesn't know what to do whether to be quiet whether to be aggressive or you know and then that patient who you go to that level to suppress their immune system you know they're going to be you know just absolutely at risk for an infection or or reactivation of their cancer so Mm -hmm. It is not clear what we should do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you mentioned the high-dose
0: steroids and the infliximab, I mean, I know a lot that's how you treat you know, severe colitis or these rashes, um, even the thyroiditis, you know, mm-hmm. the
1: patients that have over there. So the thyroiditis is quite common. So that probably occurs at least in 30 or 40% of patients that are on checkpoint inhibitors. Mm-hmm. So that, that's going to happen. You know, and you got to monitor for that. Uh, luckily, uh, that may be the only itis that they develop. But mm-hmm. Certainly rashes are a big part of the picture. And then, like you say, the intestinal disturbances. You know, places where you have a lot of immune cells, you know, they may become overreactive. Mm-hmm. So your skin, the intestines. You know, yeah, yeah. I so think. It's, it's a very, it's it's truly groundbreaking therapy in the cancer world. That's why people are using it so much. So it's, it's like fantastic development. It's uh-huh. really changed the, the world in melanoma and lung cancer and possibly some of these other cancers. But in those two spaces, mm-hmm. you know, you've had people that they could be, you know where people actually start bringing up the cure word, uh-huh. in, in a patient with melanoma, that's just unheard of. Yeah. So I think that. This these therapies are not going away. Mm-hmm. At all, they're only going to be more common. So we really need to, get out ahead of it and figure out how we're going to manage. Okay. Because I think, that's the other piece: is that if you had, if you had metastatic melanoma and you got three doses of a checkpoint inhibitor and say they were following something in your lung or under your arm or wherever, Mm -hmm. and it went away. It was all gone. And then sometime after that, you had some event and we were worried that it was myocarditis, and we said, no, you can't get checkpoint inhibitor ever again, Mm -hmm. where your melanoma just went away after three doses. You're not likely to go along with that. You know, yeah. you're gonna say, wait a minute, that drug really made a huge difference in my cancer. You know, can't you do something? Can't you like modify something or you know, give me some other medicine and then I can keep getting it? Yeah. That's the next question. And that's the question that we we need to answer. Mm-hmm. Is how do we keep people on the drugs? Mm-hmm. Awesome, I love it. Now we've
0: hit a lot, but what other pearls do you have about these the, the cardiotoxicities
1: um, that we haven't already brought up? Yeah, I think really uh, the whole myocarditis piece is of great interest to people. So people have talked a lot about it. Uh-huh. The rhythm issues, I think, are uh, they're they're reported and people have noticed them, but I would say most people don't really think of rhythm disturbances as a uh, manifestation of myocarditis so I would mm-hmm. say make sure you include that in your in your process okay. and then the other thing it's very interesting that especially people that present with myocarditis there's about a 15 maybe 20 percent association with uh, Myasthenia gravis so if a patient starts saying that their eyelids droop yeah, you know Or maybe one eyelid is drooping, you know the bells need to go off. Uh-huh. and so uh, that is a uh, fairly common Sort of simple thing that shows up if if a person has noticed that you know their eyelids droop then I would know, it start I would be quite alarmed
0: uh-huh. That's right. I remember reading about that. Some people recommended if you see myasthenia gravis that you should look for myocarditis. I, I
1: agree totally. And I'd say I, I would take it one step further. If you see, you know, just eyelid drooping, uh-huh. you should probably, you know, I don't know how to prove myasthenia gravis. I can't remember how you do that. Mm-hmm. So so even the, So I think if they have ptosis, of of one eye, or, or you know, possibly both, but definitely one eye. Mm-hmm. You know, to, absolutely, you need to think about it. Gotcha. Okay. And, and then now, uh, you you need to need to get on that, not not look into it next month. Gotcha. Okay.
0: Well, thanks for your time Great. again. Always thanks. a pleasure. Super. So, as a couple of things to recap, the cardiac manifestations for toxicities related to immune checkpoint inhibitors. Can have a wide variety of presentations. So it really requires that the clinician have an open mind and consider these, these options. Particularly, one, a couple of pearls that I took away from this is that troponins are not always elevated when there can be myocarditis in the setting of immune checkpoint inhibitor toxicity. Second, I think very important to remember, is that if the, your patient develops signs for myasthenia grapice, such as an eyelid droop, this should really raise your concern for myocarditis because there's a 15 to 20% incidence in that population. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of AP Cardiology. This series is supported in part by MedPage Today, where you can find transcripts of the episodes. And this episode was supported in part by Think Labs, the creators of a high-quality digital stethoscope. Much thanks to the band Brooke for Free, who song Night Owl on their album Directionless EP, I have Used for My Theme Music. It is used under a Creative Commons license,
2: attribution.